You're listening to the Bridge Between Podcast, a weekly exploration of how a family history project transformed into a search for understanding, truth, and the points of connection between people. In dialoguing with others, we begin to understand ourselves. My name is Cisco Ramos, and this is The Bridge Between. Eduardo Hughes Galeano was an Uruguayan journalist, writer, and novelist. His most famous work is The Open Veins of Latin America, Five Centuries of the Pillage of a Continent, and in his work Galeano analyzes the history of the Americas and describes the effects of European and later United States economic exploitation and political dominance over the region. While this is Galeano's most famous work, I don't believe it's his best. One book that I really appreciate is called Los Hijos de los Días. And to start this week's episode, I'm going to read a brief translated excerpt from that book, which frames where I think today's episode should begin. In 1492, the natives discovered that they were Indians, discovered they lived in America, discovered they were naked, discovered that sin existed discovered they owed allegiance to a king and kingdom from another world and a god from another sky, and that this god had invented the guilty and the dress, and had sent those to be burnt alive who worships the sun, the moon, the earth, and the rain that wets it. Fourteen ninety two is the most coincidental year in history, and I don't even know if coincidental is even the right word to describe it because what happened 528 years ago is still reverberating today. In addition to Columbus allegedly discovering lands and populations that had always been here, and this occurred sometime in late September to early October of that year, and earlier in 1492, specifically on March 31st, Queen Isabel of Castile and King Ferdinand of Aragon issued the Alhambra Decree, which effectively expelled all Jews from the Spanish kingdoms. During this critical juncture in human history, I can confirm that my ancestors originated primarily from Basque country in present-day northern Spain. And around this time, my 17th great-grandfather, Cristobal de Oñate, he was both a conquistador and a captain. He had several children, at least two of which would eventually become conquistadors themselves. There are two things to note here. First, the Oñate family was very powerful and wealthy. And in today's terms, if we can translate sort of where they stood in Spanish uh, society, they not only had a seat at the table, but they actually helped build the table itself. This is the same family that, quote, explored New Spain and founded New Mexico. And in historical terms, they're a big deal. And before they sailed to what they call the New World, and since they held the formal title of conquistador, the men in the family were were almost always soldiers. Uh, in the 8th century long Reconquista, which was the name given to a long series of wars and battles between the Christian kingdoms and the Muslim Moors for control of the Iberian Peninsula. And the Reconquista lasted from approximately 718 to 1492. The only thing that I have to go on for family records of these kind, other than the many gallons of ink that have been spilled in history books, are birth, marriage, and death certificates which honestly look more like chicken scratch than anything else. 
and it takes a lot of time to read one document and it takes a lot of time to confirm that the individual in question is in fact the person that I'm actually looking for. Legibility is a massive problem to say the least. And while I can't speak to the day-to-day -day specifics of any life history, there are certain things that I gleaned from history books about the time. Again, and as a side note and a pedagogical note for that matter, for anyone doing this kind of work, this is where findable documents converge with history books. And while history books can't tell us specifics, they do provide valuable context. Conquistadors were very religious. They had to be Catholic. For those who went to what they call the New World, they had to have money and even perhaps have some connections. They needed permission from the crown to go. Not to mention, it was also a risky proposition. You could die, and depending on the outcome of an, of an expedition, even if you lived, you could face financial and social ruins. And there were three reasons why most people went. People went for God. A lot of people went for gold. And some people just sought glory. And while they called it the Age of Discovery, it's important to remember that the men who went were also deeply flawed individuals. They didn't consider many populations to be human. They went for deeply selfish reasons. And in my opinion, it wasn't an age of discovery so much as it was an age of destruction and exploitation. It's important to acknowledge this because there are competing narratives to how we understand this aspect to our history. For me personally, I can acknowledge and understand how the Spanish and Portuguese told themselves that it was an age of discovery. They stumbled upon the Americas, enshrined religious homogeneity at home, and fueled by illusions of grandeur and greed, they helped lay the seeds for what we now call the Atlantic slave trade. And for them, it was, quote, the finding of new resources and the finding of new populations that proved in their minds the misguided notion of superiority. And it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the most staggering thing to consider, at least to me as I'm putting this episode together, and which I may devote a full episode to in the future, is just the sheer value of the resources, the gold and the silver that the Spanish ultimately stole. And I think just as important is what the gold and silver ended up funding. And to keep it brief here, it was enough gold and silver to fund the Ottoman Empire. It was enough gold and silver to fund most of Europe. And it was enough gold to fund the Habsburgs for centuries. And even the gold that lines the nave of St. Peter's Basilica, the gold that surrounds the six-foot-tall letters that spill out scripture, that gold in the Vatican is from the Americas. It's staggering. I don't buy the narrative that it was an age of discovery. It was an age of destruction, an age of exploiting populations that had existed, populations that had their own histories and cultures, populations that had their own conceptions of their own origin and place in the universe. My family, my very, very distant family, played a role. And the most conflicted I've ever felt about this sense of dual consciousness that most Latin Americans have, you know, part indigenous, part Spanish, being the harvest of empire took place in 2005. When I studied in Spain, and I actually had the chance to visit the main cathedral in Seville. And 
I actually saw the tomb of Christopher Columbus. And if you haven't been, Columbus's tomb has four pallbearers who represent four kingdoms of medieval Iberia. The person they're carrying is Columbus. And I remember standing in front of the tomb and reading the inscription, and I just stood there. And I was trying to give myself time to process the person that was in front of me. The history I had read about the time. And I just reflected on my own experiences in Texas and Mexico. And seeing the honored and vaulted position they gave this person. And the more I stood there, just the more complicated I felt. One of the few things I can remember saying in that moment was, even now, they seem to be looking down on us. And while many people will say that 1492 was a long time ago, that no one who was alive is responsible for those actions, I would say two things. First, the systems and structures that they created are still in operation today. Those systems and structures were inherited and can be found in the lines that demarcate national boundary, religious and ethnic affiliation, and even forced migrations of many African populations. And since they are a creation, they can be modified and adapted to make a world a more humane place. And second, from my own experiences, people generally don't do a good job of reflecting on the past making amends however one can, and work to make sure that our undersides of history, the shadows of our better self, that they don't repeat themselves. I started this week's episode talking about 1492 as the most, and for lack of a better word, coincidental year in history. My very distant family played a role in these earth-changing events. They were conquistadors who ended up in New Mexico and Mexico. They played a role in the destruction of native populations, what, have, what is otherwise known as the other half of my family. We're the product of that. There's nothing I can do about any of that, really. I guess what I'm really trying to say is that I'm confronting this history, that it is not only important to remember what happened, but the motivations and intent that infueled their actions. I hope this week's episode resonates with you. I know for many people listening, 1492 may not resonate at all. I start there because I'm interested in the origins of how we understand and put difference into practice. Where do the lines begin? For me, there's no way to understand race or racism if you don't understand 1492. There's no real way to appreciate the role of religion in the Americas without 1492. People may disagree with me on those two points, and that's fine. Um, you know, if 1492 doesn't resonate at all with you, you know, please, if, if you're interested in confronting the undersides of your history, go to where the seeds of division were sown and start there. Where do those lines come from? Who put them there and why? And don't be afraid to let the questions guide your way. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Bridge Between. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you'd like to reach out, you can email me at thebridgebetween at gmail.com. That's thebridgebtwn at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at thebridgebetween. That's thebridgebtwn. Thank you for listening.